I realized doing podcasts that it's really hard to do these and not feel like a creeper because my next guest, <laughs> uh, I creeped on him on LinkedIn, found out he was an author, regular speaker, you know, been in the industry doing the thing in the SRE world. And so I, I pulled him on board and, and so happy he decided to join me before I introduce Jeff. Wanted to give a quick reminder. So the barcode, well, first of all, this podcast is both an audio and video. So the barcode behind me will actually get you to all of my social information. Please reach out. I love interacting with people, um, even if you want to tell me that I suck at what I'm doing. But also, I have another podcast called Tech a Sketch, which is much more career focused with Ashton. And it's a really fun format where we do doodles while we talk about industry stuff. So uh, just remember to check that out. And now I get to introduce Jeff. So Jeff, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Hey, Chris, uh, my name's Jeff Smith, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm currently director of production operations at a digital advertising software company here in Chicago named Centro. You know, I've been in the operations space for 20 years, been, you know, switching back and forth between individual contributor and leadership roles. Um, you know, I, I fell in love with DevOps probably like, I don't know, 11 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I, I got a ticket to the first DevOps conference in Chicago. And it really spoke to me, like, you know, all the problems that I'd been encountering in my career that I couldn't put names and terminology to. So, you know, I really took to that community and, uh, you know, it's been a fun ride since. So. Uh, you know, I, I like playing with stuff. I love playing around with different technologies, but at the same time, I'm a pretty practical guy. So sometimes like the thing that resonates with me is like, like that blog post that went viral a while ago, like choose boring technology. Like that's me, right? It's like, oh yeah, we could do this whiz bangy thing, but you know, maybe Postgres will do just fine. <laughs> so you can't be that practical because you have a full-time job. I think in the background, I see best dad ever. So you're, you're a daddy. And yeah. you're writing a book and speaking at conferences. That doesn't sound very practical to me. How do you how do you split up your time? Uh, poorly. Uh, I split it up poorly. You know, the the book was a was a fun endeavor, and you know, people are always like, "Man, I can't believe you have the discipline to to write a book." And I got to say, like, working with Manning Publishing was great because. Uh, we always do better when we're accountable to someone else, right? <laughs> Even if it's something that we want to do, right? That's why there's all these like fitness coaches and diet coaches. It's like, you know, you're not supposed to eat Cheetos, but when you got to tell someone else uh, that you're eating Cheetos, suddenly you're, you're a little better about it. So uh, that process was a lot smoother, but honestly, it's just, you know, it, it's just like being as effective as you can be with your time. Uh, you know, speaking is a lot of fun to me. I love going to different conferences and just meeting people and talking to people about how they're solving their problems and the sorts of problems that they're running into. And that was really what inspired the book was meeting with all of these different individuals that, you know, had sort of the same problems that everyone has, yet they're so focused on these Google blog posts and Netflix blog posts. And it's like, you know, the truth be, you've got much smaller issues, right? So don't worry about cargo coding, what Netflix and Google is doing, right? Focus on what it is that you need to get done for your organization. So the book really was inspired by these conversations of like, hey, how can I write something that's practical advice that most people in the, DevOps, in the operations community can use? Yeah, well, I wanna dig into that because I, I think you're right. The 
no, I know you're right. Getting real about DevOps and, and not chasing the shiny is, is where we are and is what enterprises need to do. And you look at things like golden signals, uh, canary releases. I won't say SRE anymore because SRE is a super powerful thing. Chaos engineering, which I know that, that you've spoken on. You know, what else? Like there's, there's just a flood of things that companies look at Oh, another big one is Dora metrics. There's a flood of things that, that people look at and they go, well, you know, Google's, Google's paved the path for me. So I just got to replicate what they do. And to your point, it was like, your problems are not Google's problems. And I, you know, I'm sorry, you know, someday, hopefully they are, but your problems are not Google problems. What do you think are kind of the, the paths that organizations go on that are the most in that line that are the most dangerous? So I think a lot of it is is chasing the sort of standard that we've talked about in different you know uh, conferences, chats, blog posts that may not apply to you. And I, I think the easiest metric to go for is uh, number of deploys per day. Uh, you might be in an industry where like your customers don't want 30 deploys a day, right? They don't want that sort of volatility. I think of like finance, right? It doesn't mean that you can't do it, but it means that it, it doesn't need to be the thing that you strive for. What you could be striving for is continuous deployability, right? Like at any moment you can deploy where it's not this huge process and project, but like teams sort of like blindly pushed towards this, oh, we need to be deploying as soon as the thing is ready or as soon as a commit is made, push it to production. And it's like, is that really a goal that your organization really needs to be putting all of their energy behind? Because if your customers don't want that, if, if your business model doesn't need that. So like for us, we're B2B um, at Centro. We can deploy anytime we want, but we deploy weekly. Why? Because if there's new features, there's a marketing push behind it. There's training that needs to happen for new users. There's all of these other pieces of the organization that need to come together to release this feature. It's not like we're just dumping this on our users. We need to get them ready. We need to promote it. There's all of this uh, work that goes into it. So, you know, accepting the fact that, hey, we're going to deploy weekly. And even when we deploy, it may be a dark deploy, right? Maybe we release the feature later. But again, there isn't this like insane push to be like, oh, we're doing continuous delivery. So that's probably the most common one that I, when I talk with people like that, oh, we got to be deploying more. We got to be deploying more. And then when you say, okay, why? They're like, well, you know, efficiencies. Yeah, go that. fast. It's all about velocity. <laughs> right. I talk right. a lot about, you know, velocity is worthless if you if you can't sustain it. But well, thank you. First of all, normally, I don't have something that's net new that I haven't thought about before. But this idea of like being deploy capable is interesting. Like that, that is a win in its own right just knowing that you can deploy on demand. You don't have to deploy, but knowing that you've built the automation and processes that you can deploy, which is really, really cool. Now, but you mentioned a new term also, dark deploy. Is that what you said? Yeah. So this idea that like you're separating uh, the release. So there's really two phases of code deployment, right? Like when you think about it, there's getting the code out into production, but then there's actually revealing that code to the end users, right? So feature toggles is a common terminology we use to talk about it. But, you know, we may say, all right, the code is done and it's going to get shipped out in the next release. But because marketing has to do a thing, because training has to do a thing, we don't want to just release it out onto our customers right away. So 
we put the control of that deployment in the hands of marketing and training. Once they've got their push out, once they've got their training done, then we can selectively say like, okay, we're going to release this feature to this group of users because they've gone through the training and then this group of users. And it's separated from the actual code deployment versus a deploy that happens and then suddenly this is live for everyone and everyone's scrambling at the same time to you know get their press releases out get their people trained up so it really allows us to sort of talk about like when code is ready and when features are released from a business perspective got it so highly predicated on a good feature flagging practice which it, the i will put emphasis on the word good because i i've seen yep a lot of really failed feature flag processes. And, but also this idea of putting the release or, or the delivery in the hands of the business, which is unique. And I think as we talk about modern applications and the fact that we're delivering services, we're not delivering versions of Apple packaged applications, and everything, and this is what SRE is all about. Everything is tied to our users. Giving the business control of the application is, is a stellar idea. So in this conversation, I've realized you have at least three more books you have to write. <laughs> in my career, I've written one full book and a chapter in a book. And both of those were just worse than anything that I like I, I'm happy with the outcome but the experience was crazy but these are really cool concepts tell me you know from a career perspective and somebody listening to this how did you get there like how did how did you how did you learn this how did you how did you ideate some of these strategies so uh I'll start with, you know, it really started with DevOps Day Chicago, right? And hearing people sort of talk about these things in a in a real practical, structured way, right? And it, treating it almost like a science, right? Where it's like, you know, okay, we're dealing with this thing that has these properties, right? And getting to the core concepts. And that's something that I've repeated in my career where it's like, how do I distill this thing into its most basic parts, right? And when you do that, you start to realize like there's a ton of different patterns that that exist that sort of repeat themselves over and over again. So one of the things that I talk about in the book, which I haven't mentioned the name of Operations Anti-Patterns DevOps Solutions, you should totally check it out. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of like the paternalist syndrome, right? And the idea is that from an operations perspective, right, we've we've come through this age where operations were like these, operations folks were these parents and developers were children. And operations had to protect the system from these children, right? Um, so we became the group of no, right? Can we do this? No, can we do that? No. And it became detrimental to the organization, right? Because dev wanted to move fast and we were constantly playing protection forgetting about the needs and the, the intent of the organization, right? So if the organization isn't moving forward, even though I've got the system up, we're failing, right? Because we're falling behind competition and things like that. So when you look at the paternalist syndrome and you think to yourself like, okay, like what value am I adding to this process? You stop and think to yourself, you're like, well, really I'm just a gatekeeper, right? But these people are the ones writing code. These people know the system way better than I do because they invented it, they created it. Now suddenly I'm coming in late to the process to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't deploy this code on your own. You need me and I need to approve it because, you know, I've got somehow 
unique knowledge to this thing that I just found out existed like six hours ago. So, you know, taking that concept and saying like, how do we, how do we figure out what it is that developers need from us? And then how do we codify that in a way that we can give to developers? And this idea of, of sort of exporting expertise, right? You're coming to me for a particular expertise, but if I can distill that down into some automation suite, I can export that expertise and make people more effective because they're leveraging my expertise without having to leverage me. So when I put you know, code deployment strategies into a, a script and give it to someone, my expertise is now all throughout the organization and people can take advantage of me and I no longer become the bottleneck. So thinking about things from that concept, you just sort of export it everywhere, right? Same thing with the business, right? It's like, you know, well, the business knows when we want to activate this flag for these users, right? The business knows when they're having these deals with a particular customer. So what is the value that now it's no longer just operations? What is the value that engineering is adding to this by being the people that decide the code is ready, it's going out to production, it's going to be live on Thursday, right? Doesn't make any sense. So we export that expertise again to say like, okay, business, you can be in control of this. And it doesn't even have to be as sophisticated as, you know, they're actually going to flick the toggle. But if they can simply say, all right, we're ready to turn that on. And it's just a click of a button. That's magic, right? That's, that's beautiful. That uh, empowers them in a way that is, that is just uh, so impactful for them and their day to day. So it's sort of been this process of just like continuously breaking stuff down and thinking about what is it that I'm actually offering? And then how do I distill that? I'll give you another quick example. So one thing that we were doing recently is um, we're trying to figure out what it is that developers want from ops again, right? We're saying we have these integration environments that are basically test environments that people deploy to all the time as part of their testing. We're trying to figure out why don't they just do this locally? Why do they need this separate environment? So when interviewing all of our devs, we're trying to figure out what is it that we're offering them, that what, what is it that they want to get from us? And when we distill it down, what they're looking for is confidence, right? They're looking for confidence in that the infrastructure that they're testing on looks like it's going to look in production. That's all they want, right? They don't really care about all the nitty gritty details that we thought they would care about. They were like, I want to take my code, I want to get it to an environment, and I want to know that that environment is going to look like it's going to look in production. I don't care about infrastructure. I don't care about setting memory settings. I don't care about all the funky flexibility that you gave us in this infrastructure tool, right? I just want to say, take this piece of code, put it in an environment that's similar to production, let me validate that, and then ship it off. So now it, it sort of reopened our, our mode of thinking where it's like, wow, we gave these guys all these levers to pull and they don't even want the levers, right? <laughs> they just want our expertise bundled up in a thing where they can say, take this thing that I'm familiar with, put it in the thing that you're familiar with, let me validate it and then be done with it. All your fancy flips and switches and all that, don't need any of it. Just let me know that my code is fine. I don't care about an RPM artifact. I don't care about a Docker container. I don't care how my code gets from my laptop to that machine. I just want to validate. So inspiring and enabling people with the art of the practical. I, uh, I like it, but now I'm getting kind of annoyed that you have so much figured out. So <laughs> I want to hit you with something that hopefully you haven't figured out because I've yet to find somebody who has, which is the culture side of it. So maybe for you, it sounds like you're kind of already in the, the culture you need to enable the practices you want to do, but imagine you're not. So imagine you're in a scenario where there's still silos 
both visi visibility silos and and there's a still a officer of no and all of this stuff. How do you approach that? So you really got to do like the rebel alliance approach, right? In the book, I talk about this um, this concept of like a culture chief, right? And the culture chief is is really like uh, an individual in the organization that uh, really sort of instills and embodies the culture of the teams, right? And how do you get that person on board? Now, the interesting thing is the culture chief could be a negative too. We always assume that someone that's influencing the culture is for the positive, but they can be in the negative as well. Um, but it's really about identifying that culture chief, right? And trying to get them on board so that the, the culture replicates. And while everyone focuses on the org structure, really it's a bunch of individuals, right? Because like when you think about it, culture exists at multiple levels. There's cultures for the department, but then there's culture for individual you know, units. Then there's cultures for individual teams, right? You're like, oh, the blue team is great, right? You go to them, there's not gonna be a problem at all. The red team, they're a little prickly, right? So then it becomes this idea of uh, identifying what it is your values are in the organization. And this, this does require a little bit of leadership buy-in, but identify what your values are in the organization. It's probably on a plaque somewhere. It's probably, you know, in some mission statement, right? But the reality is once you take those values, figure out what is it that we do that reinforces those values? What are the actions that we take that reinforce those values? I can't remember it off the top of my head, but if you read um, Enron's mission statement and values, it's beautiful, right? It's the greatest thing ever. Like, you're like, wow, this is great. But then you have to stop and think like, well, what are they doing to actually enact that? Well, probably nothing because they collapsed in one of the greatest accounting fraud scandals ever. So you have to think about that. Like, okay, if testing is important to us, what are we doing about testing to ensure that it's part of our culture, right? Are we enforcing it and requiring it for every commit? Or do we just think it's a suggestion, right? And the, the difference between that is like, try submitting a piece of code in Google without any test cases around it, right? The culture itself, never mind the automation, the culture itself will be like, are you crazy? Did you just submit a bunch of code with not a single test, right? Whereas other environments, it's like, oh, you were busy, I get it, you know, we'll get to the test later. No, the culture, the culture has to have something that is reinforcing the values that you've laid out. So think about what those things are and ask yourself, do they exist? And what can we do to change that? and work with individuals to say like, hey, how are we changing that? Also examine your place in the organization and, and some of the negative negativity that you might be creating, like with the paternalist syndrome, right? When someone is coming to you, think to yourself, why are they coming to me and how can I empower them? One of the great things I learned in the networking session is, you know, pe people say networking is hard and they say the, to make networking easier, stop thinking about what you can get from other people and think about what you can do for other people. That's how you network, right? You say, you know, what is it that I can do for you? Same thing with changing a culture. I don't not need to get you to change. What can I do for you? And when you flip it on that, you become much more empowered. And at the end of the day, if nothing changes, all right, so you get a bad rep for being a great guy that's super helpful, right? Like there's no downside. So like turn it around and say like, okay, what can I do to help you and to make this culture a little better? Maybe I'm going to the operations team and I'm helping them with some automation, right? I'd say, hey, you know, this would be a lot easier for you if we could just do some automation around this. And I know you guys are hung up. Maybe I'll write something and donate it to you guys and you guys can, you know, modify it and get the ball. I'll get the ball rolling and you can, you know, uh, fix it up from there.
be humble, right? Um, when you're engaging people. So there's a lot of different tips and tricks, but it all depends on like what it is that the, the sort of cultural boulder is in your organization. Sometimes you just got a bunch of jerks, right? <laughs> like I know we want to stay like, oh, it's blameless and everyone's redeemable. Eh, right. Sometimes you just have someone that, that, that has a personality that isn't redeemable. Now, the trick is you have to dig deep enough to to learn like you know is that the case or is there something underlying that you know is making this person prickly and and if we resolve that the situation's better but sometimes it, it's it's not and it's just like hey maybe you're not the right fit for this i was really hoping you wouldn't have an answer for that and i'll accept well, your we'll answer. see <laughs> it's pretty good <laughs> no it's really good i want to repeat something you said though that i think a lot of people forget because they hear this term culture and they think that it immediately it's hoodies, pizza parties and, and awesome, but culture exists no matter what, and you can create a bad culture too. So it's not, it, it's not by saying the word culture, it doesn't mean like you're trying to shove something down everybody's throat. It just means you're, you're being deliberate and the strategies you mentioned uh, are important. And like you said, at some point, you know, maybe the, you got, you got talent challenges. I mean, I mean, I've, I've not talent, like just personality problems and or challenges. And, and I've seen that. All right. So it's time for the terminology game. So I'm going to throw three random ish, random ish terms at you. Just, you can find it. Give me your impression. I, I don't really care. <laughs> just tell me what okay. you think All of right. it. All right. So first one is DevSecOps. Uh, DevSecOps is the next logical extension to the DevOps paradigm. I, I think because we keep giving things a name, we're going to keep pulling things in over and over again. So it'll be DevSecOps, DevSecFinOps, DevSecFin Business Ops, DevSecFin Product Ops, right? Um, I, I think DevSecOps exists currently because security is such sort of like this other thing and we need to pull it into the pipeline. But DevSecOps to me long-term will be a term that is sort of redundant and will be encapsulated in DevOps. I think we need to call it out now because it is this sort of separate beast. But like, if you, if you go to any shop, like a lot of shops don't have dedicated security teams, right? The security team is the ops team. And it's not like because they don't have a dedicated security team, they're saying, we don't care about security, right? They're just saying, well, that function exists within the operations organization. So how do we start pulling security into these pipelines that we do on a regular basis to make sure that they're working together? But like, when you look at the core of DevOps, right? We're talking about, hey, talk to your colleagues, involve them, right? Uh, make sure their viewpoints are taken in. That's really what the core is, you know, work together towards a common goal. So if you, if you think about it from that perspective, right? DevSec, Fin, Prod, Products, Design Ops, DevSec, QA, right? It's, it's insane. Um, the same way we look at QA today as being so integral to the actual development effort, I think that will happen eventually with security as well. The idea of these terms really giving us a chance to have the conversation is is spot on. I mean, it, it gets annoying the amount of terminology out there, but at this point in time, and it's meaningful to have a conversation specifically around shifting security left. So that's, that's spot on, but also is the point that once we've done a good job at it, this is just part of the practice of building better software faster. I mean, that's all anybody actually cares about, but that it's not as fun to say something right. <laughs> as a, a really long sentence. So I'm going to give you another ops one. 
uh, GitOps? I honestly, I'm not even really sure. Like, like I guess at the core of it, it's like you know, make, make sure all your stuff is 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 committed in code and automated through pipelines, like similar to development workflows. Like I. I'll be honest, I'm not really big on, on GitOps as a term, the same way I'm not big on like DevOps as a job title. It, it's like, well, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's not GitOps. It's just like, I don't know, the way that we do things today and maybe giving it, maybe it's in the same boat as DevSecOps, right? We're giving it a special term, sort of focuses on that. But like the minute we start talking about platform as code, infrastructure as code, anything we say that as code, I would hope far enough along in this industry journey that as code immediately implicates code repositories <laughs> and whether it's git or or you know stvs or or you know subversion like you know if that's what you've got to work with right then by all means do it but i don't like the idea of well you're in an older shop that's using subversion so you can't do GitOps. yeah you can it's just a repository right like that's all we really care about you're doing infrastructure as code platform as code all these things and somewhere that code is checked into a repository so get it done probably won't yeah. have as many libraries to play with but <laughs> i think that's in line with a definition and i i'm not i'm not going to make this comment specifically to GitOps, but i will say that the the part of terminology that does drive me nuts is when it's used to create to just segment audiences for the purpose of segmenting audiences but also to create member only clubs we're like well i'm not a part of that club so i'm going to create my own club <laughs> and i'm going to eat and i'm going to call my club this i don't think that GetOps is really that i think that all of the things that you mentioned are extremely valuable to any delivery chain but some terminology does fall in that place. So this next one is really going to be, I'm really curious about your perspective on the future of it, which is serverless. Ooh, serverless. Um, I think when we move to serverless, we are most likely going to see a contraction in the operation space, followed by a big boom in the operation space. And what I mean by that is, I think a lot of people are misunderstanding what serverless is and what it empowers folks to do. So, so Charity Majors had a great blog post on this in that operations as a function isn't going away, right? And even if you're doing serverless, there's still a bunch of infrastructure things that people need to manage and care about that developers probably don't want to spend their time on. So there is still quite a bit of value in having an operations team that's dedicated to things like monitoring, alerting, infrastructure management, right? Because even though you've got serverless, yeah, we've got serverless databases coming up, right? And the future of that is, is certainly bright, but there's still all of these operations functions that are, are going to need to be handled. And I, I can imagine um, this sort of like uh, old no-ops operations, this uh, whole no-ops movement that was around for a little while. I could see that coming to, to in vogue, right? And then people are like, yeah, we don't need operations, sweet. And then suddenly realizing like, wow, we need operations because like, you know, the monitoring, the alerting, the, the incident management stuff, that's not going away. And it is a discipline. Right, it is uh, an area of expertise. Um, I think we've come a long way from operations just changing backup tapes, right, <laughs> to you know it being a very specific 
set of skills and expertise that is separate and distinct from development. Once people realize that, I think operations would make a comeback again. And um, for those companies that were smart enough to realize that they were still going to need operations, they'll, they'll have a, a bit of a head start. And I guess it'll be really interesting to see like what it does to startups as they sort of delay that operations hire. Because I do agree, like, you know, once you take on operations, there's a whole another, you know, thing that you have to deal with. Uh, but once you sort of cross that Rubicon, you're, you're sort of stuck, right? So like, if you can, if you can stay on Heroku, stay on Heroku as long as you can, right? Um, but then at, at some point when you cross over and, and you build an operations team, that also means that sort of the seriousness of your product and the impact of its unavailability um, is essential to the survival of your business, which is a good bridge to cross, right? Because it means, all right, sweet, we've got customers that are paying. Uh, but, you know, if you're a small startup trying to scrap it out, right, maybe you forego the operations team and put, a lot, put it all on Heroku for a while. Um, but then when you need it, you're like, oh, cool, because being down actually costs us money, which is a win. I might be eating my words when I say this, but I and I've said it before, it's not new. I think the day that would there is no operator or no need for an operator is the same day that humans are not building applications anyway. So there's no developer, there's no and and in your example of Heroku, which is actually a, a project I'm working on right now with Heroku, yeah, it's it's convenient and easy, but we have one person keeping track of creating the pipelines and the apps and instrumenting the observability and metrics and, and all of that stuff. So there's still somebody who is dealing with those elements of the application. All right. So, so real, oh, go one ahead. quick thing I wanted to say about that too, is like the way I've always looked at operations, right? If I have to define operations to someone, right? We all are familiar with business operations, right? And the point of business operations is to make sure that the business can move supply and inventory and all of like the, the details of running the organization are sort of encapsulated in business operations. That's really what IT operations, technical operations is, right? It's the business of making software and managing all of those things, right? And we are in our infancy where we think that operations is just one big group, but now we're starting to see operations break up into smaller groups where we're focusing on site reliability. We're focusing on uh, in, internal tools and automation, right? We're focusing on monitoring, alerting, and these are becoming very separate and distinct focus areas or silos under the operations umbrella. So when you think about it from that perspective, you're always going to have to worry about, you know, all of the tooling infrastructure that's necessary to help build your product. You're always going to have someone that's thinking about what this pipeline looks like from an organizational perspective to get things into production. So to your point, I completely agree, right? Like as long as those are always concerns, there's always going to be a need for operations in some capacity. Right. So to close it out, tell me what you're excited about in the next one year, two year in the field of DevOps, and then remind everybody about the title of the book and, and where to find it. So next one to two years, I'm really excited to see, and this is sort of a macro view, but I'm really excited to see what the pandemic does to the job market. Um, specifically around this idea that now that more and more people are accepting remote work, right? What does that look like for the field in terms of people's ability to sort of 
move around and, and, and get work. Because I feel like there is probably this huge pool of talent in small places, right? Like, um, I don't know, Boys Town, Ohio or something, right? <laughs> like, like there's, there's all these talented people that exist all over the country that are probably doing unfulfilling work for them because they are where they are for whatever reason, right? They're, they're in this town because that's where their parents live or, you know, they just have this sort of like emotional connection to it. So I, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for a lot of companies to acquire new talent. Um, but I think it will also start to become an arms race as, you know, bigger, more well-funded companies have the ability to sort of reach out anywhere. So it'll be interesting to see how companies um, evolve and change in that respect. And then also um, what we do about culture, right? Because so much of our strategies around culture involve us being in the same space. So how do you, how do you build and maintain that culture in a completely remote environment? And some companies have a head start on us on that, um, and some of us don't. So, um, what does that sort of like building of camaraderie look like that is so prevalent in a lot of ops teams um, when you're firefighting in the middle of the night together? How does that change? What does that look like going forward? So, yeah, that's probably what I'm most excited about. And uh, I've been playing with Kubernetes a lot, so I'm excited personally just to sort of play around with that and uh, uh, get some more experience and exposure. The book is titled Operations Anti-Patterns, DevOps Solutions. It's available on um, manning.com. It's available on Amazon. We just recently launched it on Audible. So if you're more of a listener, you can listen to the book. And uh, there's there's not a lot of code. So it's not like you're going to hear someone reading if not if not deployable equals equals. Uh, none of that. Uh, it, it's almost uh, predominantly tips and tricks about processes, working with people, strategies, stuff like that. So I'm sure it'll be a, a pretty decent listen. I actually haven't listened to it, but uh, I listened to the first chapter and I was like, okay, she's, she's doing good. She's doing good. I don't read it myself, but 